Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, good morning, everybody. Now I know why Carol was looking so diligently through our picture files at home the other day. That was a picture taken of me with a birthday gift several years ago that Carol and Stephen gave me to go flying at the flying club where I took my first lesson. And that was in the exact same plane that I took my first lesson. That was not the same instructor, though. (laughs) That was a different instructor. Actually, it was the student that went to school with Stephen in high school. So that was all quite interesting. And uh, it was a treasure. But today we continue on in the series that we've been studying in 2 Timothy titled The Household of God. And we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. If you don't have your Bible with you and you want to use the Brown Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 1854. But have you ever stopped to consider all the different characters in a household? Think about your own household. Not only those who just live in your same house, but your entire family. In a sense, that's what we do. That's what we've been doing when we read and study the letters that Paul wrote, as was mentioned earlier, we're looking at that entire church family that Paul had as he went on his various missionary journeys. We've been getting glimpses of this Christian father and son relationship between Paul and Timothy. And we get that relationship as Paul writes these letters to encourage Timothy and to instruct Timothy on carrying out the work that Paul had been doing. Now, Paul was writing these letters and speaking to Timothy, not with the demeanor of a superior officer to a subordinate in the army. He wasn't barking out orders, and he wasn't expecting Timothy to snap to attention, salute, and right away go and follow the orders. And they weren't to drive business-only commands and responses that take place in a modern airliner. In the modern era that we're in today, airliners and their standard operating procedures actually have a policy of what they call a sterile cockpit, and that generally happens below 10,000 feet. Below that altitude, the only conversation that's allowed to occur in that cockpit has to do with flying the aircraft, and that's so that there's no distractions and that there's the utmost of safety in the aircraft. That's not the language Paul had. It wasn't a business-only command, follow command instructions. It was the loving relationship between a father and his son. Paul was looking for Timothy to take, as Paul put it, the sound teaching and to continue to spread that gospel message in the footsteps of Paul. And in our passages this morning, we're going to look at that fatherly advice. And what I've done this morning is to take these passages and I've divided them into three sections. So I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I'm going to read each section. And then we'll take a look at each section. So the first section, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it 
will become more and more ungodly. I don't know how deliberately Paul chose his words when he wrote this letter. Did he deliberately think and contemplate about each word or did the words just flow from his mouth to the scribe? But there's a sentence here, a sentence in this first portion that we're looking at that has to be an encouragement to anybody who seeks to follow God. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. For a lot of people, the second half of this sentence is a real encouragement to them. But for me, for myself personally, it's the first half of the sentence that really speaks out loud and clear. And it's this first half of the sentence that has to be realized for me before I can apply the second half of the sentence. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Notice that Paul is not saying, strive for perfection as you present yourself to God as one approved. Paul was not saying, present yourself to God unblemished and without error as one approved. But he merely says, do your best. For anyone in the leadership role, whether it be in a church or in your own home setting, the idea that you don't have to be perfect is indeed a comforting idea. We only have to try our best to present ourselves to God as one approved. Surely a comforting thought indeed. And isn't that what parents tell their children? Just do your best. There's even a line from a children's song that I remember. Do your best and let God do the rest. Well, we all make mistakes. We all get it wrong from time to time. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. But he does expect us to strive to be more and more like Jesus every day. But he does so with us knowing that we can never be like Jesus because we are not God. But we can strive to be more like Jesus in that we should be striving to have less and less sin in our lives. We can strive like Jesus in knowing that we will never have the same command of God's word the way Jesus has. But our goal should be to understand it and follow it as best as we are humanly capable of. I recently listened to the science show on CBC Radio several weeks ago. And on there they had a scientist who was, I believe he was an astrophysicist. One of these guys with a lot of letters after his name. And he made the comment that in his opinion, he doesn't think mankind has the mental capacity to understand all the secrets of the universe. Even if they were presented to us, our minds can't understand to that depth. Likewise, I believe that as deep as we dive into God's word, we will never reach the bottom of it. We can never exhaust the complex simplicity of the gospel message, and we will never exhaust the simple complexity of God's love for us. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul declared himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had an undeniable zeal to follow God, but it took a not-so-fortuitous encounter on the road to Damascus for him to understand just how wrong he had gotten it. We don't need to worry about having a perfect batting average. God doesn't expect us. He just wants us to be willing to get into the game. When that happens for me, that's when the second half of the sentence can come into play. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. But what does that mean, to correctly handle 
the word of truth. We've just established that Paul wasn't advocating for perfection in Timothy, but he does expect them to handle God's word correctly. How could anyone handle God's word correctly knowing we can't be perfect in the process? What's the realistic balance that Timothy and the rest of us need to strive for in doing so? Several years ago, Peter Kerr was up here doing a basic introductory lesson on, I believe it was hermeneutics, studying the Bible. And uh, he left behind the option of a self-study course through Emmaus. And I signed up for that course. And there's one lesson in there that has stood with me through all those years. And that's the lesson of the bullseye. And if you take that bullseye with its concentric circles that get closer and closer together until you're left just with that little tiny circle in the middle, that bullseye, that has to be our core value that as Christians we all agree to, we all agree to abide to, and that we agree to never argue on. Our core Christian values. The gospel message. The message that Jesus Christ came when he presented that new covenant to us. That has to be the very core of our essence as Christians. And as you expand and go beyond and those circles get bigger and bigger and bigger, you get into more and more areas for which God has given us glimpses and perhaps some brief hints of explanations, but he's left it up to us to chew on it and to think about it, to dwell on it, and to debate it. And for generations and centuries, theologians have debated some aspects of the Bible over and over with each other, never coming to an agreement. But that doesn't mean it's wrong to do so. It just means that we have to have the understanding that when we get back to that core, that's where our core belief has to remain. And as I heard one preacher once say, when two people disagree on an interpretation, one of three things, one of three possibilities will occur. Either I'm right, either you're right, or we're both wrong. And we have to agree to that. And so happens, that's often the case too. But what happens when someone mishandles God's word to the point of leading someone away from the faith that they have in God? That's a very serious thing to have happen. And that'll bring us to our second set of verses that we have today. Chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will be more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for the noble purposes made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Now here Paul is pointing out two people to Timothy, who apparently, for Paul, did not measure up to the sentence that we had just looked at earlier. They did not do their best to present themselves to God as one approved. Workmen who do not need to be ashamed and who correctly handled the word of truth. What these two men actually were teaching is a bit of a mystery 
All we are told that it involved that they were teaching that the resurrection had already occurred. Now, this is the challenge when we start reading somebody else's mail, and that's the challenge with some of Paul's letters. We don't know all the background that Paul and Timothy would have shared with each other without having to rewrite it all. Obviously, Timothy knew more of the background to the story than we know. Now, one possible explanation that I came across in the commentaries of what possibly Hymenaeus and Philetus were actually teaching revolves around Greek philosophy. Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, as he was known, spent a lot of time within the Greek culture. The idea of a physical resurrection of the body of both Christ and the Christians was foreign and difficult for them to grasp. And it was difficult for them to grasp because Greek philosophers viewed the soul as immortal and the body a temporary prison for that soul. So there was a natural tendency towards heresies that rejected bodily resurrection. The heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus probably involved the idea that resurrection was purely spiritual and occurred either at conversion or at baptism. But as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, resurrection in the future is a keystone to the Christian faith. We go back to that bullseye in the core, the very center of that bullseye, the things that cannot be challenged, argued, or changed if we are to continue in God's mission of the church. See, it's possible that if this is what they were actually teaching, it would make sense of why Paul came down so harshly on these two men. Because they were starting to mix Greek philosophy with Christ's message of salvation through grace. And once that starts to happen, God's message gets watered down and we start to become our own little gods in the process. Now, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he mentions Hymenaeus again another, and another man named Alexander. Now, I'm not sure if this is the same Hymenaeus in both letters. But it's interesting that if it is the same one, how Paul moves from one letter to the other. See, in the first letter, when he was talking about Hymenaeus, he was critical about his teaching again. And he, in fact, said, I've handed him over to Satan so that he will learn not to blaspheme. That means to not speak irreverently about God anymore. But notice he didn't hand him over to Satan to spend an eternity in hell. It wasn't revenge that Paul was looking for. It was for him to learn the error of his ways, for Hymenaeus to be restored back to the church body again. We'll fast forward to Paul's second letter to Timothy, which probably would have written, been written in as little as one year between the first and second, and maybe at the most four years. See, it's believed that the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy was written around 63, 66 AD, and the second one probably around AD 67. So these letters could be very close together. But Paul, in the second letter, has ratcheted up his comments for this man, Hymenaeus. Paul says his teaching will spread like gangrene. If you want something to make your stomach queasy, look up images of gangrene on the internet. It's disgusting what can happen to the human body. I won't even describe it to you. But gangrene is the death of tissue caused by a lack of blood supply. And it's interesting that Paul would use that analogy. 
Paul's comparing the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus as having the same effect. Their ungodly teaching is having the effect of destroying the faith of those who listen, which if left unchecked, could kill the entire church body. Hence the harshness that Paul came down on these two men. The differences between Paul and these two men is not a debate over something in that outer circle of the bullseye, something that people have debated generations and generations. It's right at the core of Christianity. Part of God's plan for salvation is ushered in him, ushered in by him through Jesus Christ. Just a few decades earlier. That's all it takes. Just a few decades for something to start creeping in. Now, Paul spoke of noble and ignoble objects in the house and how the cleansing of the ignoble objects makes it easier for the person to use the noble objects to be more useful to the master of the house. Now, Paul is not implying that we should all go home today, go through our house and throw out those things that are less noble. This is an object lesson, an analogy that Paul is using, not for the house with the roof over our heads, but rather it's for the house with inside of us. Our bodies are a living temple to God. And we need to go into our house, our human temple, and clean house. To throw out those things that are not as noble as they could be. So that what we have left are things that are useful for God to use us for in his will. Let's look at the last group of verses before us today. Verses 22 to 26. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captives to do his will. I've been a Christian for a few decades now, 1991. Reading this was the first time that I realized the word evil is in the name of the devil. I never realized that before. I don't know if that's a so-called coincidence, or if that's kind of some divine intervention in that. But just a little tidbit I throw in there. doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, you can still some, learn something new. But these last four verses in chapter 2 contains instruction from Paul to Timothy in a practical sense on how to work with people who disagree with you, who downright oppose you in some cases. Have you got anybody like that in your life? in your work life, your social life, perhaps in your own family life? Have you got that person that every time you meet and you discuss something, the debate turns into an argument and it just goes nowhere? Well, Paul is giving Timothy some of those practical guidelines on how to deal with that person. And it revolves not how the world teaches us. See, the world teaches us you need to stick it to that person. Get even with them. Find a way to Put your thumb on them. But Paul was saying, you need to love that person. You need to be gentle with that person. You need to teach that person. And that may not be a one-time occasion, but it may go on and on and on for years in the hope that they will 
find that repentance through Christ, through God, to have that close fellowship so that you can edify each other now as Christians rather than oppose each other. But Paul gives also other advice to Timothy. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now here Paul is not implying that those not-so-righteous desires of a youthful person are any more evil than those of an older person. Timothy was a young man for the role that he was in as a church leader. He was a young man who had obviously never experienced the evil desires of an older person. So Paul wasn't putting them in any kind of a, a list or an order. He was simply saying, be on guard for those things that would cause you to sin and draw you away from God. I'll leave it up to you to come up with your own list of what those things might be. And the best way to do that is to pursue righteousness. To pursue faith. To pursue love. To pursue peace. It's pretty hard to uh, trip yourself up with an evil desire when that's what's on your mind. Now Paul goes on to give more practical advice on how to be a servant worthy of God's praise. This should be every Christian's goal to be a servant before God. Someone who God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant on that day when we stand before God. And every single one of us will do that. We will stand before God. And he will either say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or if you choose to spend your time on this earth serving yourself, then God's going to probably say to you, away from me because I never knew you. The choice is ours. What we do. We can choose to ignore God. Or we can choose to serve him. Even Jesus Christ, who's God's son, said, I have not come to be served, but to serve. We've talked about that. That was already mentioned this morning. Jesus came in obedient servanthood to his father, and he went through the same trials and temptations that we face. Don't think you've got it any tougher than anybody else. Jesus Christ faced more than any one of us did. And he showed us how to come out on the other side, on top of the pile. He was obedient all the way to the cross. Now, here's a simple test that I found to help you answer the question, am I God's servant? Now, it's not enough for me to stand up here and say we need to be God's servant. But we need to have a self-test to first determine, are we God's servant? Just two simple questions. That's all you have to answer. Question number one. Are you willing to obey anything the Bible clearly says to do, whether you like it or not? I'll read it again. Are you willing to obey anything in the Bible that the Bible clearly says to do, whether you like it or not? I'll never forget a time I was working in a customer's house. I was uh, renovating her bathroom and her son came home from school. Couldn't have been more than senior kindergarten age. And I heard them off in the other room and the mother asked the son, do you have any homework to do? And the little boy says, yeah, but I don't like doing homework. And the mother very wisely said, that's okay, dear. You don't have to like it, but you do have to do it. And that's what's being asked here. If we truly believe God knows what's best for us and we desire to follow him, we will obey him even if those examples or those times cost us something. 
When children run the household, the result is chaos and often harmful in the long run. Our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us. And we, His children, would be very wise to heed His leading, His teaching. His desire is to see us grow and flourish. And who better to trust than the one who created us? Well, question number two in this self-examination. Are you willing to trust God in anything he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not? Are you willing to trust God in anything he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not? Sometimes, and for some people, oftentimes, we don't understand the situations that we are in. I thought I was doing everything right. How come God has allowed this to enter my life? When will things get better? Will things ever get better? And here's the tough one. Where are you, God? You're not alone. You're not alone if you've ever had these questions or others like them. I don't have the answers to these questions. I'm not God. I can give you general examples as to why things happen in a person's life but I can't give you specific examples of why God is working in your life. And even through the trials, don't forget, God is working in your life. It may not be until you are on the other side of that trial that you look back and you see the purpose for what God was bringing you through. The Bible puts it this way, In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The challenges we face make us stronger for tomorrow. The athlete doesn't sit on the couch all of his athletic career and then get up for the big game and get into the game. He trains. She punishes her body. They break it down to build it up again. They sacrifice. It's not easy to be an athlete. It's not easy to be a Christian. And Christ specifically stated that. To choose to follow Christ is a path that at times is quite hard. But we need to look at the prize at the end of the, uh, the journey, the same way the athlete does. Ours is not a gold medal that we look for. Ours is for an eternity in heaven with the King who created us. Anything is worth that. Anything. In the end, you must determine whether Christ is your Lord or simply your life coach. If He is your Lord, you will trust and obey. If He's your life coach, then you will simply say, well, He's a man with some good ideas and I think I'll pick and choose and cherry pick the ones I like and just implement those into my life. Is Christ your life? Or is Christ just your life coach? But before you can even think of being a servant of God, you must first be a follower of God. And it makes sense. Why would you or how could you be in anybody's army if you're not a part of that army? Even God's own son did not think servanthood was beneath him. There are only two ways that I know of to become a follower of God. Only two ways that I'm aware of. 
Only two ways to have the assurance that you're a part of God's family, adopted members with all the rights and privileges that go along with that. The first way, and I don't recommend you try this way, is to be perfect. Perfection is one of the ways to get to heaven. But wait a minute, Jim. You say, time out. Hold on. Let's step back a minute. Let's just think this through. Earlier you were telling me, Paul was saying to Timothy, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good enough. You just have to try your best. What's going on? Are you being hypocritical? Well, the short answer to that is no. I don't have time to go into the long answer, so I'm going to give you my medium answer to this. Earlier we looked at Paul telling telling Timothy to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So in that sense, a workman approved by God, we are doing our best knowing that we will make mistakes along the way. We don't have to be perfect to be a servant of God, but we do have to be perfect to be saved. Salvation requires perfection. There's no being good enough to obtain God's salvation. I'm glad this is not how you get to heaven, that you just have to be good enough. Because who makes the rules? Who sets the standard? How good is good enough? Your standard's different from my standard. How do you know when you're good enough? What's the test that you need to follow? How many steps do you have to take to be good enough? What happens if you're good enough and you slip and now you're not good enough? Do you have to become good enough again? What happens, what happens if you're one step away from being good enough and you die? How cruel would that be from a Savior to be that close? I'm just one step away from being good enough, Lord. Why? Why did you do that to me? No, I think perfection is a good standard. And by the way, perfection starts right from life's first cry to its final breath. You can't be perfect in that last five minutes of your life on this earth. You have to be perfect. And who who's ever had kids has had perfect kids. In our own minds, they're perfect to us. But to everybody else, they're not perfect. They lie, they cheat, they steal. It's just in our DNA. It's called sin. But if the standard for salvation that grants us eternity in heaven is simply perfection, heaven must be a very empty place. Because Jesus was the only human that I know of who ever reached that goal from life's first cry to final breath. But fortunately, there's a second way and God knows who we are and, and what we are. And God gave us that second way. That second way to become a follower of God, to have the assurance of salvation and an eternal home just waiting for you and I. God knows that we aren't perfect. And that's why he created grace. And last week, Dave mentioned that grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. And we don't deserve grace. We don't deserve to spend eternity with God. But because God loves us, and he knows we're not perfect, he said, I've got another way for you. And you all know what that way is. It's accepting that offer of grace through repentance. Through turning your back on the sin that is in your life today and not wanting that in your life anymore, but choosing to turn and follow God, knowing you're going to stumble and fall. But that's what forgiveness is all about. That's all a part of grace. And that's what God does for us. I'll leave it up to you to choose which one you want. Perfection or grace. I chose grace. Grace. 
it's the complex simplicity of the gospel message that is so profound. The message that's simple enough even for a child to understand. Here's the prayer a child once made asking Christ into their heart. Lord, please come up my nose and down into my heart. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And to that little child, it made perfect sense. I mean, they're sticking their finger up their nose half the time anyway. So why wouldn't God go up there and down into their heart? But it's the complexity of that gospel message that we can never reach or understand the full depth of just what that means in our lives. And it's the simple complexity of God's love for us that grants us immunity from spending an eternity in hell. Simply put, we love because God first loved us. God's love for us, as simple as it is, is complex enough that Satan in all of his schemes cannot thwart God's love for us. Well, this morning we've continued to look at Paul's loving advice to Timothy, whom he loved as a son. We've seen how we don't have to be perfect to be a workman approved by God. We've taken a brief look at what it means to handle the word of God correctly. We've looked at an example of two people who, don't, who didn't do that, Hymenius and Philetus. We've looked at some practical advice on how to deal with argumentative people. We've looked at a self-test to determine if we are servants of God. And we've looked at what we must do before we can even think about being a servant of God. That's a whole lot of looking that we've been doing. And it's my hope and my prayer that in, throughout this whole series that our vision has become clearer in our relationship with God. That our vision has gone from being cloudy, from needing glasses, and that it continues to improve. And as we walk along our Christian life, that our vision becomes clear until the point we stand before God and our vision is better than perfect because we can stand before God and have him say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Heavenly Father, we come before you in humble adoration, knowing that it's not by our strength that we can do anything worthy of your praise, but it's through your spirit working in our life. And I pray that that's what he would be doing, that each and every one of us here would not only be indwelt with the Holy Spirit through that comes through salvation and as Jesus promised to send us the Comforter, but I pray that your Spirit would be working powerful in our lives, that he would be not only comforting us, but encouraging us, that he would push us out of our comfort zone to embrace the plan that you have for each and every one of us. You have a plan that is perfect, far better than any plan we can ever come up with on our own accord. And I pray, Lord, that each of us, each of us would leave this building today with a renewed spirit of our own, a fresh and powerful spirit ready to take on whatever challenge you bring before us. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.